Hello, and welcome to Bobby and Jens, presented by Zwift. Zwift is the app that connects you to cyclists all over the world and makes indoor training fun. There are structured workouts, training plans that are really easy to follow, online group rides, and why not try a few races? You can even organize a meetup with a bunch of friends. You might just have to make your own coffee at the end, though. With Zwift, you can even listen to this podcast while you ride around the Champs-Élysées. All you need is a bike, a trainer, and the Zwift app. Get a free seven-day trial, no strings attached, at Zwift.com. Ride on. Welcome back to another episode of Bobby and Jens presented by Zwift. My name is Bobby Julik, and as always, my trusted co-host over there in Germany somewhere, Jens Volt. Jens, how are you doing, buddy? Uh, I'm good. I had quite the interesting and eventful day. Um, went uh, early swim with my son, tried some diving exercises, had a good uh, tennis game with one of my daughters and one of my children decided to get a tattoo. And as a father, I don't fancy the ideas of tattoos, not too much. So it was a little bit of an up and down day for me. Oh boy. Yeah. I have a soon to be 19 year old daughter as well. And um, she has my car. She had to drive to see her boyfriend down in Charleston, which is about three hours away. And You not only have to accept that she is an adult, but you have to accept that she's still going to borrow your car. So, um, yeah, life as uh, girl dads is not as easy as you would assume, that's for sure. But today on the podcast, we have a great guest, a legend of the sport, Philippa York. Okay, well, today we have a guest, actually for the second time. We tried doing this a little earlier, a couple weeks ago, and we had a couple technical difficulties, and we are just so absolutely pleased to have Philippa York with us today. Philippa, welcome to Bobby and Jens. Hello again. The Tour de France is right around the corner. What are your plans during the Tour de France? And we're going to have to pick your brain a little bit about what you think is going to happen. So I'm off to the Tour de France on the 22nd of June. So that's next in a week's time. And I'm spending almost four weeks with David Walsh um, of the Times. And we are working on a few things. I'll do some reports for Cycling News and a few little pieces for Ruler Magazine. And hopefully not crash the hire car. So are you going to have a driver or is it just you and Mr. Walsh driving and navigating and making sure there's enough petrol in the car and checking the hotels? You do it all? You're a two-person team? Yeah, so we were a two-person team. That David has done the organizing of the hire car And he's done the hotels already. So we're not looking for hotels on the same day that we need somewhere to sleep. Um, and I'll do most of the driving um, because David talks a lot and gets some um, distracted. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I'll do the driving and he'll talk constantly. And um, I'll probably ignore him for most of the time. 
Well, I hope David's budget was um, somewhat decent because after all those years that you spent in France, that Jens and I spent in France, one of my least favorite memories are the hotels in France. You know, the small rooms where you can barely open your suitcase to go to the bathroom, you know, the no air condition, the mosquitoes at night. Um, I, I hope that Dave has you has you covered with that. But let's talk the race itself. I mean, there is a lot going on here. And I would just like to get your overall pre-race, you know, couple weeks out kind of overview of how you think the Tour de France is going to shape up this year. I think basically it will turn into Ineos versus the world. Um, because Ineos have so many leaders, so they basically they're going with half half the team could could possibly be a team or could be team leaders and some in another team. And then they've got four helpers. And already the helpers, you know, they're good enough to be lieutenant or road captain or whatever. So I reckon that it's going to be Ineos versus everybody else. And the, the really interesting thing has been the avoidance of the main favourites in the in the um, kind of pre-tour races like the Dauphine name Tour de Suisse. So you've had Jumbo not sending their best riders um, to Tour de Suisse or Dauphine. Um, and you've had UAE with Paul Jar avoiding, you know, um, avoiding racing with Rojnik and with the, the Ineos leaders. So it t- kind of turns into an unknown. But from what we've seen from the way that Ineos are riding, um, I would imagine that the other, you know, UAE and, and Jumbo Visma will try to leave the race control um, to Ineos, for at least, you know, until they see how things are going to pan out from after the first week. Don't you think, um, like, it just uh, because I looked at that exact thing as well, I have the feeling that the races they are won by Ineos were only half races. Like, the best two riders were not there. That's like you race the Formula One without Lewis Hamilton. Or if you have the Paris Open without Djokovic and... Uh, 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 Nadal being there, you go, well, yeah, I don't know. If you win, yes, it's a good win. But is it the same with, you know, the top, top riders there? I think they keep their cards pretty much covered. And I, I wouldn't count them out. Or uh, in, 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 in another way, Team Ineos shouldn't feel too safe, even though they had three fantastic wins with the Giro, the Dauphiné, and the Tour de Suisse. They still shouldn't feel too safe. Or a, a, am I wrong? No, I don't think they'll, they'll be that confident. The, the thing about this is that UAE and Jumbo Bisma haven't shown how good they can be. You know, so you know, um, Tour of Slovenia is not a major race. Um, Jumbo Bisma haven't sent, haven't done any kind of results at Dauphiné or, or Tour de Suisse. So, you know. It, it's a kind of unknown of how good they're going to be, um, but given modern training methods and the, and the kind of programming of when you're going to come into form, then I, I, I predict that, you know, they're going to turn up in good condition, whereas Ineos, we already know kind of where they are. But like you say, that they, they haven't been great fields, so they haven't been that special a race. Um, so, you know, it's, it's hard to say before. I, I think they've all carefully avoided each other, so they go to the tour you know, with confidence in their leaders, whereas if they got battered before, you know, if they got handed a lesson in bike riding, you know, the Dauphiné or the Tour de Suisse, then um, 
is completely different than how you turn up to the race. I, I think it's almost a little bit of what happened last year. You know, the Tour de France was the first race, basically, and out of the blocks, out of a training build, out of a training camp, boom, Jumbo Visma was there. You know, Pogachar was there. Sky wasn't really there. So Sky had to, yeah. Sky, I'm sorry, Ineos, um, Ineos Grenadiers, you know, they, they, they flipped the script. They, you know, won these races. They have the confidence going in. But I really have to hand it to the, the DS and the coaching staff at the other two big favorite teams, Jumbo Visma and UAE Emirates, because that's, that's a risk. I mean, we, we saw that obviously Pogachar is, is riding quite well. He, he just uh, hopped and skipped and jumped his way to victory in the Tour of Slovenia. But um, Rolich and all of the big Jumbo Visma riders sitting on the sidelines training um, doing their homework, maybe doing more recon than, than uh, Ineos Grenadiers has done. I am absolutely so excited to, to see the outcome of this race because, yes, the Tour de France is the biggest race on the planet. And you can win all these other races, but it doesn't really matter unless you come to the Tour de France and stand on the top step of the podium. So it's going to be an exciting three weeks, and I can't wait to get it started. Exactly. You know, that um, it's an interesting way of going about things. And people have brought up that very point before that um, Ineos turned up, you know, having not having done as much prep as they, they ought to have done, whereas Jumbo Visma and UAE obviously had prepared the race last year's race a lot better. Um, and probably that's why they've gone with the same kind of formula just earlier in the, in the season. So they, they've just moved the whole thing a couple of months forward instead of looking at a Tour de France which is in September now it's in, mainly in July so it should be interesting and you know we we have you on the podcast um, normally on this podcast we look back to a rider's early days um, are you happy to talk with us about your your Robert Miller days because the experiences that you have in the Tour de France and at this level is, uh, yeah, pretty much second to none. Um, could we talk a little bit about the, the Robert Miller days? Yeah, of course you can. You know, um, I deal with the whole kind of Robert Miller Philip a bit um, quite um, distinctly. So what I could have done, you know, so if I had certificates and diplomas and kind of professional qualifications, then obviously I could have done them as Philippa, but I couldn't have ridden the Tour de France as Philippa. So therefore, it makes no sense for me to deny that's my history. Um, so referring to the Robert years is fine with me. I'm, I'm not uncomfortable with it at all. I'm used, kind of used to it. So um, yeah, we can talk about that stuff. But like you say, I've been lucky enough to be in the position of seeing how, you know, major stage races are won, you know, so for the tours, Giro's. I've seen how world championships have won, how classics are won. I haven't won any of them myself, but I've seen myself left behind and um, how good you have to be at that level. So um, that's quite that's always been quite interesting. Well, I don't know about you, Jens, but I got into cycling in 1984 when I watched Alexi Graywall win the Olympics in Los Angeles, beating Steve Bauer, of all people. Um and right then and there, he had a Pinarello bicycle, and it was like, 
red, white, and blue. And right then and there, I was like, okay, I'm not really even started racing yet, but I want to have a Pinarello. What was your introduction to cycling and what was your first bicycle? We ask this quite often to our guests and it's always such an interesting answer. So my first kind of encounter with the Tour de France would have been shown, there used to be a program called World of Sport on um, commercial television in the UK. And it showed about 15, 10 to 15 minutes of Tour de France every summer. You know, so every Saturday you would be getting, you know, 10 to 15 minutes of the kind of race report. And sometimes there would be, you know, British riders in it, but usually there weren't. And I thought, that looks interesting. I wouldn't mind trying a bit of cycling. And that's how I got into it. And my first bike would have been probably a really, really ancient um, make called the Flying Scott, which was made in Glasgow. Um, but it was really, really old. You know, it, it, it didn't have any modern features at all. And it was made out of tubing that plumbers would use nowadays. <laughs> um, and five gear, I think it's five gears as well. Yeah. So that was my first kind of introduction to it. I, I, nowadays, you you wouldn't race on a bike like I raced on it. It was just um, a bit of a clunker. So um, your first bike, you started training or racing immediately from getting that first bike, showing interest in cycling. How long did it take you to put a number on your back and race? And where did you go in your children's years, youth, or as a young grown-up? How did your racing career develop? So I started cycling just to see outside of Glasgow um, because I, I'm born in the middle of Glasgow. So I, I started, you know, riding just to see what was on the outskirts. Um, and I never raced until I was 16. Um, so I raced the kind of last year of ju junior level. And in my first race, I was last. There was only six of us finished, but I finished sixth, but I was last. Um, but that, that didn't seem to bother me that much. Uh, and I think I did about five, six races in my first year, but I only you know, raced probably from about August to the end of the year. So, so the, the year ends quite early in Scotland because you know the weather gets bad in October. And I suppose I progressed quite, quite quickly kind of through the you know, the, the different levels. So where I was in Glasgow, I wasn't the best rider um, straight away. But, you know, after about probably six to nine months, I was. And then I was be the best rider in Scotland the kind of following year after that. So then I went to race in England. Um, and then after I was the best kind of racer in the UK, <laughs> then I went to France. And um, then the whole kind of thing developed into, yeah, I want to be a pro bike rider. Um, but I, I decided to, I wanted to be a pro biker quite quickly. I about the age of 17 when I was still at school. And I used to say to the other kids at school, I was going to be a pro bike rider. And then they just kind of thought, nah, you can't do that. Because nobody from Scotland is ever a pro bike rider. <laughs> um, and especially from, you know, from a kind of industrial city as well. And the, and the background that I have, you know, it's very kind of working class as well. So we didn't have a lot of money. Um, I mean, it was just, it's just something um, to say you were going to be a bike rider in Europe and that kind of stuff. You're going to go into the Tour de France was just beyond most people's kind of comprehension. I, I could have said I was going to be a pop star and they would have got the same reaction um, just because it's beyond what our kind of um, social level was, you know, our life ex our kind of expectations of what our life was going to be. You know, we were expected to kind of go and work in a factory or a shop or something and um, 
be contented with that. And I, I, I didn't fancy that at all. I, I wanted to be a bike rider. My kind of first, my, all, all my kind of amateur years, every year I progressed, you know, a couple of percent, just enough to move to the next level to so that when I was at national level in the UK, when I went to race internationally, I saw that that, that leveled, you know, up to the kind of East Germans and the Russians who dominated then, wasn't that far from where I was. So then when I trained in the winter and kind of improved what I was doing, um, it seemed realistic to, to get to the international level. And then when I was at international level, it seemed realistic that I could be, you know, a basic professional rider. So the, the, the kind of steps through my career were kind of, I wouldn't say they went easily, but they were, you know, you could map it out as the kind of ideal way to do things. And, that, and that's the way it kind of panned out that, you know, each, le- each step I took to the next level of competition, um, it made me slightly better and I was competitive so that I didn't feel like I was wasting my time. Well, you weren't wasting your time. There's no doubt about that. I mean, you started out at the, the famous ACBB team and then turned pro for Peugeot, Michelin, you know, iconic teams like Panasonic, Fagger, um, Zed, uh, even TBM. And uh, you ended your, your career at Le Groupe Mall. Um, you know, to, to our viewers that don't know, um, you also were on the podium of Grand Tours. You won mountain classifications in, in all the Grand, grand Tours. Uh, you won stages in all the Grand Tours. And I used to have a picture of you up on my wall. And that generation of riders, they just seemed so tough. You know, they nowadays we have the cold weather pro- protocols, the warm weather protocols, all these things going on. But back then, I remember one of the favorite uh, pictures that I had on my wall was of Kim Anderson in Perry Nice. And he was riding on the front in the snow on the side of the road. And he was covered from head to toe with every single like garment that he had on. And this was a, uh, I think it was, he was on Lobby Claire that year. But what was it racing in your, what was it like racing in your generation? Um, was it just like, hey, you know, get it done, get it over with, win the races? Or was there some underlying, um, I guess, progression to where we are now about people talking about, you know, training so much, eating so little, riding when it's too hot or it's too cold, dealing with road furniture? Or was it just a tough, tough sport back then? The hardest part of, um, you know, when I stepped into the pro cycling level was dealing with the sheer number of races that you were expected to do. So you raced every weekend and you probably raced in between as well. Um, And a normal season would be, you know, 100 races in the year. So um, that, so training, you know, now people talk about training blocks and stuff. Um, we tended to train a little bit in the winter and then the races just started and then it was just a relentless kind of oh you know one race after the other you just you just went from one race to the next and if you had form you know you didn't know why um, and if you got worse you know you just got more and more tired until you kind of fell apart completely but you wouldn't get a, a weekend off um, so you would just go to the next race and you know get up fairly quickly and stop if you could if you didn't have any kind of work to do in it for the team. 
Um, and that was probably the hardest part because you never got to fix the things that you, you know, when you started the, the, um, the season and you identified the problems, you know, the, the aspects of your riding which you weren't happy with, you never had the space or the time um, to fix them. Uh, so whatever kind of you come out of the winter with, and every winter would be different because um, as you're a human, you know, you go in and you, the same input would go into the winter. Um, but what happened with your body and how it reacted would be different each each season. So, you know, you'd have different problems to deal with, you know. So rectifying those problems as you kind of raced, you know, from one thing to the next um, would be quite difficult. And uh, the, the sheer workload of it was was um could be quite daunting you know you're doing 100 races a year and you're expected to be you know have an active part in those races every time you know so if you weren't even riding for you know if you weren't team leader or riding for the win um then you were expected to work for somebody who was so you would just get more and more tired and i think that's what was struck me the most is that the, nowadays people talk about you know they can do proper prep and proper um recce's of, of courses and downhills and you know kind of the crucial points in certain races you never really got time to do that because those you know important parts of say like Tour de France or of the or Tour of Italy or something they would be in smaller races which you were doing already you know in April or in February and um you have to have, try and remember well, you know what what you'd seen if you were at Tirreno or something that if, if there's going to be an influence on the, on the Giro or something like that or Milan San Remo um and that was probably the hardest part to deal with. For, for the clothing and stuff like that, that got better, you know, as the years went on. Um, but probably the biggest influence was the arrival of all the English-speaking guys, so, so guys like Greg and ourselves. We didn't come with that kind of attitude that we accepted of how the way things were done. So we, you know, so we asked for better food or we asked for, you know, better backup from the team or we asked for better bikes. <laughs> so we were quite often we were a pain in the ass because we asked for stuff that the guys didn't really want to do. So they, they would class us as quite difficult just because we were asking for outside of the norms because we recognised, you know, that certain areas like nutrition and, and um, the kind of aftercare of how we were looked after in the races needed to be better. And then there was the case of, you know, when, when, when Greg LeMond came and he asked for better wages, then there's a... A whole thing about that about us being paid too much and all the rest of it because um yeah that would make us soft as if it changed anything at all it didn't it didn't change anything you're in you're, you're in the side winning the gutter in a belgian race you're not really thinking about your salary in those conditions you know <laughs> so yeah I, I never really thought of it as hard i just accepted that that was the workload that i had to put in and it was a workload that was expected of me and everybody around about me so when i saw you know the way things have changed now. When you get you get training blocks and um, periods off to recover for this and that, I just think you know that's the kind of more modern way, more kind of you, your career is going to last longer like that because you're not going to be worn out so quickly. A, a lot of the guys from our our kind of period, they got worn out really quickly just because of the sheer workload. If you if you were going well at one race, you got sent to the next, even if it wasn't a good race for you. Um, and that just seemed like a kind of silly thing to do. But who are you going to argue with? You know, the, the, the team management pays your wages and they send you through races and you have sponsors' obligations that you have to go to certain races. So 
eventually you understand the politics of how it all works. But um, wasn't it like mind-boggling for you? I mean, you, you're a smart, intelligent person. And the way you described it, you must have realized the problems already back then that it's an overload of racing and they just wouldn't listen to you. You just tried to tell him, look, I could be better. I could win more for you if you give me a chance to actually take a weekend off and train and he wouldn't listen to you. What, what wasn't that? Be, you must have sometimes just gone, how stupid can they be? Well, why they don't see the clear logic behind it? Was that a tough part back then? Yes, but who am I going to argue with? You know, the, 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 the management pays my wages. They decide where I'm going, hmm. you know, and they decide on the workload. And we've agreed it at the start of the year as if, you know, so... You'd have your, it's the same as nowadays, you know, you have an agreed calendar or event of races you're going to go to and you look at it and you think, yeah, one after the other, you know, <laughs> so start of the year, the Paris-Nice, the classics, and then you go to Romandy, Dauphiné, you do a training camp, you go to the tour, to the tour you do criteriums, and then you're back into the whole thing of Tour de Limousin, World Championships, end of year stage races and then it's Lombardy and it, it, it just never ends but you had agreed to it at the start because you know you wanted to do those races because quite often they'd be exciting you know and the, the, the kind of management would, would look at it and say well this is the way it's always been done and when you arrive and you're not part of the kind of established hierarchy you can't really argue that you want two weeks off because you know you want to go and do the recce of whatever race it is Lombardy or something you want it's a new new climb and you want to go and see what it's like but that never happened because you didn't have the the power within the team structure to to say you know you needed a rest if you needed a rest it was because you were broken so that that you waited the team would wait until you were physically unable to do your you know to to pedal to and then then you'd get a week off but you'd be expected to be back the next weekend, you know, riding on the front for 100K because, you know, you needed the training. And I can give an example of this. Um, I, I Towards the end of my career, I think it was the last year I was at Zed, I got sent to Paris Tour, 280Ks of flat, a sprinter's race with a headwind for, for the whole day. And I had asked for the, that weekend off so I could train a little bit for Lombardy, which followed the, you know, so the three Italian races that lead up to Lombardy. Um, and they refused um, because um, the team manager, Leger, said, I wouldn't train properly. I needed to train, I needed the 280Ks of Paris Tours to um, knock me into shape or whatever, but I was really tired. So it just seemed madness to, to make me sit on the, on the back of the bunch and wait till I get, Till I got dropped so I could stop and not be so tired that when I went to the three Italian races I was I was in better condition and that kind of thing you know would happen quite often that you would get sent to a race you know and almost always in September I'd, I'd you know I'd ask for a day, you know a weekend off or whatever and it'd be refused and I'd be expected to then go and ride the first 100k of the race for somebody else who was interested in winning that race um so things like Grumpy or For Me and Grumpy Diesberg, you know, not races for me, but I'd expect you to do do work there because, you know, the other guys are working for me for, for the other races. And um, I'd ask to get those, not do those races and then be refused because you weren't judged to be capable of looking up yourself well enough and to train well enough to come to the next races in decent condition because they didn't trust you. Hmm. Which is just crazy, but you know that 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 was a mentality that you 
you go through a race and that somehow that keeps you in condition. They didn't seem to realize that one race after another just suited people who are really, really strong. Well, one thing I, I need to mention to the current generation of, of cyclists, we spoke a little bit about this um, the last time we spoke, and I just, I don't want to dwell on it too much, but you mentioned that the English-speaking group kind of started to make some changes. They started to question the mentality that was there. And one of the two favorite things that you mentioned to me where, you know, I think everyone should just get down and bow at your feet is that you were actually the person who implemented bringing the food box around, the famous food box with, you know, nice little um, treats and cereals and jams and jellies. And at CSC, we took it up a notch and we're like hot sauces and Thai sauces and everything like that. So, you know, that's a staple of things in the, in the, in the, at the races now is that, that food box. And then the other thing that I really was blown away was that you were the first person to say, Hey, I don't want to travel back and forth with my race bike. I want to have my race bike at the races and I want to have a training bike at home. So all you pros out there that have one or two or three bikes at home, you can, you can thank Philippa York and you know, that food box that has those nice little spices and things that you can put on your, your food. You can thank her as well. So I didn't, I, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say I, I was responsible. I was part of the group that, that, you know, just kept asking for stuff. You know, we just kept asking for, we didn't want to eat steak and rice every day. For our for our race meal for the pre race meal, we didn't want to eat you know um, ham and cheese either. We were used to get up and having breakfast of cereals. So, so then we said you know so then we would come with our own, and then we needed somewhere to put it. So then they get the, this one you needed a box to put it in. So then we put it in the box, and then when it when it ran out, he went and got more, and and the box just got bigger and bigger. So then it was you know it had every type of cereal that you could get, um, and if something new came out, then we had to try that because basically we're children, you know. Um, and then people asked that to ask them for honeys and jams and chocolate spreads and all the other stuff that you weren't meant to have before the race, you know, Nutella, all that kind of stuff, which was on the forbidden list. Oh, Nutella, that'll kill you, you know. As if eating a steak about, you know, two hours before you go up a big hill at the start of the race is going to be good for you. Um, so, so, yeah. And, the, and the, you know, the, the bike at home, well, that made sense for everybody. I didn't want to be taking a bike home and struggling with that in the in the plane and then sticking it in the car to drive home and then bringing it back again and hope it doesn't get crushed in the luggage. And it just that just seemed crazy to me. But it, it wasn't my idea. You know, other guys had it. It was just I started moaning about it <laughs> quicker than everybody else. Because it, it didn't seem logical to me to, to travel the bike. It, and then turn up and the mechanic had to check if I'd cleaned it and um, if it was damaged, you know, so that just, yeah. And sometimes my, my bike at home would be better than my race bike. So, you know, that always cheered me up as well. Well, also uh, to our listeners, we must say that before the arrival of um, Sir Bradley Wiggins, you were the highest ranked GC contender out of Great Britain in the Giro, in the Vuelta and in the Tour. So, for like what 20 years at least you were like setting records there nobody could even come close to you you're pretty much a legend and like bobby said i had a picture on a wall as well it had uh, you on there in the mountain jersey in the tour 
I believe Greg Lemon, maybe Delgado was on the picture, and uh, Bernardino. Did you guys back then, You were you aware that this is the legendary times, or you were just busy racing and surviving the day? No, I was aware that, you know, what I was doing was setting a, a new kind of standard. So when I arrived in the pros, I looked at what the the best, who'd been the best UK rider. And it was Tom Simpson, who'd been world champion and he'd been fourth. I think he'd been fourth or fifth at the tour, or maybe sixth. Um, and Barry Hoban had won eight stages. And I thought, Am I, will I ever be capable of, you know, of, of bettering that and and you know some aspects of that i did and i was the kind of first uk person to win one of the tour classifications um so then you know then you become aware that what you're doing kind of sets a new standard for the, the people that come after you um and yeah and when you're in the tour you know you're in the front and you're there with a the world champion and the race leader and the, you know the guys are going to be on the podium you're aware that it's going to look quite good in the photos and then, you know and 20 years later when they make them in black and white it's going to look kind of vintage and authentic yeah and in that kind of you know for, for your ego and your ambition and your own kind of self-importance it, it, that's quite that's quite good you know I used to kind of like that I think well if I do something you know if I attack now and I and, you know and he knows going to counter-attack and blow me away but you know I'll attack now and I'll, I'll cause a whole heap of shit um but at least people will see you on tv Uh, and and they'll know that okay you, you know he know went away and left you but it was my fault because I caused the whatever happened. Um, so sometimes I would do that just be so that you know people noticed you were in the race because otherwise what's the point? What's the point of getting dragged round to you know to come ninth and nobody knew you were there? Or if you attacked at the good right at the good time and you knew you knew that one of the other guys was going to blow past you, but at least you did it. At least you know at least you got your face on TV at, at the kind of epic time. And, and you guys will know that from racing. You know, when you when you ride on the front of the tour, you know, there's a certain kind of response from your body to it, and mentally it makes you feel good, and all the rest of it. And, and then that's why you race. You, you know, you race to feel good and and enjoy the kind of speed and the the moments of excitement that there are when racing. So yeah, you, I'd be aware of you know, I'd look at what's happening, and I'd be in the polka dot jersey, and I'd look around about me, and I think, well, this is going to make good TV, and this is going to make good pictures. And if it did, then great. You know, that's why I do it. It's nearly summer. And if you're looking for some help getting back into shape, don't worry. Outside Plus has you covered. Bobby and myself are both members and get to enjoy training plans, exclusive gear discounts, entry to cycling events and more. Including access to premium content from other outside publications like Velo News, Trail Runner, Yoga Journal, Backpacker, and Peloton Magazine. All in all, it's $350 worth of value for just $99. But if you enter our special coupon code, BobbyJens25, at checkout, you will get another 25% off. Go to valuenews.com slash outside plus and enter BobbyJens25 all one word, lowercase, at checkout to receive our special 25% discount. Now, back to our chat with Philippa. Well, you know, so we, we've talked about your early days. We've talked about the, the Tour de France days. 
Give us a little insight into your retirement from the sport. And, you know, in your own words, because English is Jens's second language and neither of us are journalists, tell us about your journey from the end of your career into your transition and, and where you are now. So um, I became aware during my career that the the whole transsexuality thing was going to happen to me after I stopped, um, right? Because I couldn't do it then uh, because it would just be too much of a scandal. You know, it would be mentally, it's a difficult thing to go with, to go through anyway, without being in the public eye. So when my career stopped, then I was in that position of you know, my marriage fell apart, you know, for, for different reasons. Um, and I returned to the UK and, I became aware that, you know, what was happening to me in terms of if I was going to transition or not, I wasn't sure. So, you know, it took probably you know, five years before I reached a really low point, a really low depressive point where I had to act on, you know, what I was feeling. Um, and those years became more and more difficult until I, and that happens quite a lot with people who are trans, you know, and, they, and they, they, you have to reach a really bad point in your life before you act upon it. Um, so those, those, you know, that those probably five years after I stopped competing were probably probably the worst years of my life. And then when I decided, you know, I'm going to have to get professional help, uh, you know, that can be quite difficult for everybody around about you, you know, for partners and children and family. Um, so that went really slowly um, in the kind of stages that it involves. And, um, yeah, you know, so that took a while, and I, I consciously didn't involve myself in cycling things. Not because I didn't need the reminders of being Robert, but just because I needed the space from that world um, to deal with what I was dealing with in my personal life, and I had to separate that from what I did previously because I didn't have the mental capacity to, you know, sustain any kind of work in cycling and transition at the same time. It, it, I needed my privacy and my kind of quiet spaces as much as possible to kind of get through a transition without being half crazy, half crazy. Um, and it, it, it's quite an um, upsetting thing to go through that you see how it affects other people and how it affects yourself. Um, so yeah, you know, transitioning isn't a bundle of laughs. <laughs> You know, it's quite difficult. There's a lot of decisions that have to be made, which you know are going to affect the people around about you and yourself, you know, um, in the future. And you don't know how that's going to turn out. So you, it's a bit like, you know, you step into an unknown and is that unknown going to be what I, what I want it to be or is it going to be something completely different? And there's no way of knowing until you take those steps. I don't know if that answered your question. <laughs> Yes, yes, it is. It was very, very, very uh, nicely put. So when was it the first time you thought, hmm, maybe I'm not happy to be a boy or, or a man? Or when was the first time that you, you questioned that or that you thought there's something else inside me? From an early age, you know, from the age of five, I realized that I wasn't like other you know, children, so other boys. Um, and I also learned from an early age that if I communicate that in any way or showed that in, in any kind of form, then the, you know, kids are cruel. So I'd, get, I'd probably get beaten up at school. So, um, 
I had to bury all that stuff through my kind of early childhood and adolescence and stuff. Although through adolescence, it was a real struggle, you know, um, to, to, if I'd had the information when I was an adolescent, I would never have been a bike rider. I would transition to, to female um, as, a, as, a, as a young girl, you know, 16, 17. Um, so then once I said, you know, once I kind of got hooked into cycling, I was able to, to bury those feelings quite well. Um, but every now and again, they would reappear. And then if, if I received any information, there was other people in the world like me um, through reading something randomly, um, then I'd have probably quite a difficult period again. Um, and, and an example I can give is this. I went to do a, a, a thing with Kellogg's. Um, so Kellogg's were bringing up some new cereal in the UK. And I was part of the promotion for that. And we went to do filming in the Alps. And there was a, a, a young girl transitioning in the hotel we stayed in. Um, and that was quite difficult, you know. So when I went there and, you know, I'm there being the, the cycling star, you know, the, the fine example of the male species. Um, and I'm thinking, well, I'd rather be doing what she's doing. <laughs> you know, she's transitioning, you know, at the age of probably 17, 18. Um, I'd rather be doing that. But, you know, the circumstances, I mean, I can't do that. It's just, it's just not going to be possible. I, and I don't have the information to do that you know that i don't know how she's she's went about that so it's only later in life when i got kind of amassed the amount of information and knowledge that i needed to decide that i was going to you know, seek medical help then um, that didn't happen to you know till i got to many in my early 40s well what, what's amazing to me is having those questions concerning your identity that you were even able to maintain your focus on on the sport, but it sounded like maybe you used the sport of cycling as a an outlet to to battle some of those things. And you know, life, cycling, everything that we do is full of peaks and valleys. And now that you've you know come out of your valley, and you you're returning to the sport of cycling or you have returned to the sport of cycling. What has made you feel comfortable about the return to the sport, uh, being who you are and yeah. What, what, what was the thing that changed where you were like, you know what? Cycling is in my blood. Uh, I'm a human being. I love it. I'm going to get back involved. So it was a bit like, you know, when I transitioned, there's no real point. You know, people seem to think, that, you know, you reach one day and you think, yeah, I'm going to decide I'm going to leave as a man or a woman or whatever. Um, it's not, it's not, it wasn't like that. And it wasn't like that, um, you know, and I decided to, you know, to, to reappear as Philippa. Um, you know, there's a couple of decisions in that and, and influences of, of what happened before. So I was writing stuff, you know, for various magazines um, and websites, and it was being published under Robert's name. And that started to make me feel uncomfortable. Um, you know, so I didn't want to be de dealing with you know, gender stuff all my life. Um, and that started to annoy me. And I asked, you know, the editors and whoever was running websites and things. Um, and they said, you know, they're okay. They'd be okay, if, if, you know, if, if it changed and I did the stuff with as Philippa. But, you know, for that to happen, I need a couple of kind of pushes to get me get to that point where I decided, right, I've had enough, you know, you know, I'm going to make the announcement, you know, I live as Philippa now, I've done that for 10 years or whatever. Um, and 
so there were a couple of things along the way that, you know, it was influenced by starting to get really uncomfortable with people referring, you know, to, to Robert when I wrote stuff as Philippa. Um, and then um, I went to a friend's wedding and she was getting married to a cyclist who I had competed with, but I didn't really know this guy. Um, so I don't know if you know him. So, so Matt Stevens, he does a, um, some of the Eurosport, Eurosport commentary. Um, and he got married to a friend of mine, Holly. Um, so I went to their wedding as Philippa, as you would, um, with a dress and the shoes and the whole thing. <laughs> um, and there there was um, Ned Bolton, who works on ITV4, and he was doing the tour coverage. And obviously he saw me there. And they, ITV4, who were doing the tour coverage for the UK, asked me to come and do some commentary some days or some kind of guest stuff. Um, you know, to add a little, what you call a little bit of colour to the commentary. And that seemed like a kind of good opportunity to, you know, to use, to, you know, so that I reappeared, you know, with doing something not important, but, you know, kind of influential, not in a kind of dumb way. You know, so I, I was there and I wasn't there because I transitioned. I was there because I knew about cycling. So I was there as an expert and not as, a, as you know, as a kind of something to wonder what happened to that person um so i asked my family and friends and stuff and they said yeah that's okay but you have to do some kind of statement you know to explain why when i do the commentary that is by philip york and who is philip york and where have they come from and how come they know about all the tour de france stuff um so i did that and um yeah to get that right and to take control of it is is, is quite interesting and, and um quite a challenge because then the you know the anonymity that I enjoyed if I went to to cycle shows or wherever and I think I went to a couple and Jens was one of the one of, you know one of the star performers on the stage and they'd ask him you know the questions and answers kind of stuff um and I'd be in the audience or you know at the side of the you know stage or whatever watching and people didn't know who I was so that anonymity I would lose you know and then I would have to deal with the kind of public exposure of my presentation and then explain the whole transition stuff um, and how that works, you know, and people would ask you funny questions and um, that's always quite interesting. <laughs> uh, so, you know, so the, the kind of decision to uh, what people call your kind of coming out, they, it's an accumulation of various influences that happen, you know, kind of along the way and you become unhappy with certain things and, and you know, your family say, you know, morals and the kind of cultures changed around the whole kind of human rights and gay rights and trans rights and all that kind of stuff so you know it kind of reached that point where you know i thought you know if i step into it and i'm doing commentary you know i'm there as an expert i'm not there to be kind of looked at as a trans person and i'm not going to feel that uncomfortable but it is it was quite emotionally quite challenging um to reappear in public and have people in kind of and you guys will know from when you when you do kind of events and you're up on stage, people inspect how you talk and react and the clothes you wear and you know the kind of answers you say. So I had to take into account was, was I going to be comfortable with that and how was I going to deal with it afterwards when I've come down off the stage or doing some kind of presentation and I'd have to analyze what I did and how it went and how I felt about it and was I coping okay with that level of exposure to the public again? 
So, you know, that, that's gradually got better. But even now, when I'm going to go to the Tour de France next week, um, and I'll step back into that world of pro cycling and... Uh, do everybody does everybody know my medical history when I walk between the team buses and that kind of stuff? You know, and I, and I go and see guys I, I raced with and they'll talk to me, you know, normally. But then there'll be, you know, the, there'll be team managers and team staff that um, know my history, but don't know me as a person. And I have to deal with the kind of reactions that they'll have. And is that going to, does that affect me? Well, sometimes it does. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm human after all. I think it's, I think it's, you know, it's, is when we're going to get to the stage when the first, you know, when the first rider comes out as a, as a, as a gay male pro cyclist, I think we're going to get to that same stage, you know, and for them, it's going to be the same kind of set of issues. You know, how are people going to react? Am I going, are they, am I going to be comfortable in this position? You know, are people going to snigger and say things, you know, and are they going to be laughing as I go past it? And that, it's that kind of situation you put yourself into and you just assume that it's going to be okay. But yeah. You have to go away and analyze how that went afterwards. But um, I, I would, I, I really strongly want to believe that we as humans have developed far enough that this shouldn't be an issue, right? Like, like I, I couldn't yeah. care less if if you, Robert or Philippa, you're a nice person, you're gentle, you're smart talking, or you you talk, you know, you know your stuff, you know your business, so you're a great person to me. Right, and I think I was hoping it should be the same for everyone. Even if a gay cyclist, I couldn't care less as long as he wins the Tour de France or he wins any good races. Hey, he's a good cyclist. I don't care if he kisses a boy or kisses a girl. Uh, you think we have developed into the right direction? It's a little easier or open-minded now, or is it still I, I walking on a minefield? I, I think you know. You look at. Um... You know, if and this isn't to pick on the, on these teams and these sponsors. If you look at Bahrain and UAE as countries, you know, so they're they, it's state money which runs them. And you look at the whole human rights and gay rights issues in the in those countries, and it, they aren't open minded. Um, so you wonder then if the sponsor has, you know, if 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 and the chances of being a gay rider in one of those organisations is quite good. Um, You know, so so you wonder, you know, if that's the situation, how that person deals with that kind of, you know, background knowledge that they're an unacceptable person in that country in that religious, you know, kind of sphere. Um, and when you kind of step in, so I lived, you know, I lived as a straight male, and as a straight male, you can do almost anything, you know. So so, and you don't realize there's limits, you know, to other people's lives based on them. You know, based on who they are or what they are or however you want to say that. Um, and it's only when you kind of step outside of that straight white male norm that you realize that uh, things get a little bit more complicated in, in the other worlds, you know, and um, having lived in the world of sport, I know, you know, you hear people say stuff, you know, in teams and in races and situations at hotels and airports about, female you know women who are working on the race or in the hotel or at the side of the road and you hear that kind of stuff and I mean, when you step back into that world as a female you realize this you know that that's going on and you have to kind of adapt your way of thinking that okay you know what are they saying about me am i comfortable with that you know and i can understand why they're the whole kind of gay cyclist thing or that you, you know 
take it even further back, the whole kind of gay football thing hasn't happened because the kind of the pressure you put on yourself and the kind of reactions you're going to have to deal with aren't always the ones that you think you're going to get. You know, and and you you want to think it's the modern world, but there's a, a lot of tradition and kind of um, you know people who say things to you and they don't they don't mean you any harm, but you know it be, it can be quite damaging sometimes that you you hear somebody say something you know well oh, I thought they looked better than that or they looked better than I thought and then you think well what am I meant to do with that information you know well, they criticize your voice or their clothes or you know or just your situation. <laughs> You said, well, well, how does that, you know, you, there's the kind of, it's, it's the same with everything, you know, in public life, you know, you, you deal with people who like you and you and they don't like you and they, and they don't know you, but they just judge you on what they see and what they hear. Well, the, well, that's it. Um, that's it right yeah. there. I mean, you're, you're a strong woman. You're an intelligent woman. And sorry to say this, but to hell with what people think. Keep doing what you're doing. I mean, we have so much more to talk about, but we're kind of at the end of our time allotment for the Bobby and Jens podcast. But, you know, we need to get together again. Um, you're a great person and great interview. I can't wait to hear your um, your responses of the Tour de France. So we're going to let you go, but we hope that you will come back on uh, later in the year when the season winds down, because um, we have a lot more to talk about, Philippa. Thank you so much for coming on and be safe in the Tour de France. Do your thing and don't let anybody get in your way. Thanks, guys. Thanks also from my side for being on a podcast and talking to us. And X, like Bobby said, can't wait to have you back here and pick your brain who's going to win the Vuelta in a few months down the road. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Me neither in a moment. Well, that's all the time we have for this week. Huge thanks to Philippa for being our guest. Thanks for listening. And please give us a five-star review and share us with your friends. The show was a Bellow News production in association with Shock Giraffe. The producer was Mark Payne, and this episode was edited by Tim Moza. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Bobby and Jens and share your cycling stories with us. Before we go, a quick word on our sponsor Zwift. When it comes to sport, I always tell my kids, rule number one, have fun. On Zwift, fun is fast. Tour de France winner Garrett Thomas uses it. So does Matteo Vanderpool and Australia's Neve Bradbury Zwifted her way to a world tour contract. One of my favorite things on Zwift is seeing the flags of people from all around the globe that I get to ride with. I love the structured workouts, doing group rides with friends, and when I'm feeling strong, doing a few races. They definitely hurt, but they are fun. It's easy to get started. All you need is a bike, a trainer, and the Zwift app. Visit Zwift.com and hopefully I'll see you on there soon. Ride on.